Well, hello and welcome along to Erwood Anglican Online once again. My name's Brendan McLaughlin, and it's no secret that I love watching movies. And uh, so I want to begin today by sharing with you the top 10 things we learn from movies. All right, top 10 things we learn from movies. So number one, did you know that you can shoot any gun about 100 times before it needs to be reloaded? Did you know that computer hackers only need about 10 seconds to hack into even the most high security systems on the planet? Number three, when you are fighting a dozen different people by yourself, did you know that they will very courteously only attack two at a time? Fourth thing we learn from movies, there's no such thing as cellulite for women, tummy fat for men or acne for teenagers. They're just a myth. Uh, the fifth thing we learn from movies is that if you fall from a third story building, you will always land in a conveniently placed dumpster. Next, uh, did you know that all couches are bulletproof and will shield you from any array of bullets? Uh, number seven, you can punch or jump through glass without a scratch. The eighth thing we learn from, uh, from movies is that kids have the emotional, intellectual and comedic intelligence of mature adults. The ninth thing we learn from movies is that any house, every house in Sydney has a view of the Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And finally, uh, what movies tell us is that whenever aliens or giant monsters attack, they always start in New York City. Well, I mention these things to highlight that there is a big difference between movies and reality, isn't there? Now, movies are great. I love movies. They are, they are, they are awesome, wonderful sources of entertainment and escapism. But they're not real. And the message of our passage today is that what is real is infinitely better than the alternative, especially when it comes to salvation. Now, as our regulars will know, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews, and the message of Hebrews so far has been, why would you even consider giving up on Jesus, given the supreme glory of Jesus? And that message kicked off in chapters 1 to 4. Now, commentators tell us chapters 1 to 4 is sort of section 1 of the book of Hebrews, and uh, he has told us so far that Jesus is the final word, Hebrews 1.1, Jesus is better than angels, the rest of Hebrews 1, Jesus is our pioneer through death, Hebrews 2, Jesus is better than Moses, Hebrews 3, and Jesus is our path to Sabbath rest, Hebrews 4. Then section 2 of the letter, and that's chapters 5 to 8, the rest of our series for this term, outlines how Jesus is our great high priest. I mean, that's been our topic for the last three Sundays. And our message today, Hebrews chapter 8, is the author telling us that Jesus serves in the true sanctuary and is a mediator of a better covenant. And the question the author asks in our passage today is, why would you go back to Judaism, given that Judaism is, is the preview, uh, the road sign for Jesus? Right? Why would you go back to the shadow, given that the one who actually casts that shadow has come? Right? As good as shadows are, as good as road signs are, as good as movies are, they're not the real thing. And when it comes to salvation, right, being reconciled with our creator, only the real thing can help us. 
And today I've got, you guessed it, three points. All right, all good sermons have three points, don't they? Uh, to help us see that if we want a real relationship with our Creator, as opposed to some sort of cardboard cutout version of salvation, uh, then we need to stick with Jesus. And the first reason for this is that only Jesus serves in the real sanctuary. That's verses 1 to 5. Second, the author tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, verses 6 to 8, and he concludes by showing us why this new covenant is so good, and that is that it is based on better promises, verses 9 to 13. And the author's goal in all of this is to ask the reader, why would you, why would you even uh, consider turning to any other religion, given that all paths to salvation other than Jesus are but a cheap Hollywood knockoff of the true salvation found in Jesus. So come with me as we look at the real sanctuary, the new covenant, and the better promises. And our passage begins uh, with these words, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest. Uh, so what the author is doing in this verse is he's summarising his argument that has been going on since Hebrews chapter 5. And the reason he's doing that is because he's about to transition uh, from looking at Jesus' designation as high priest, so that's Hebrews chapters 5 to 7, to Jesus' role as high priest. And that's Hebrews chapters 8 to 10. And, uh, and he says this, uh, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human, a mere human being. So a few things uh, to, to unpack there. Firstly, we're told that Jesus is seated. Now, why is this significant? Well, there's two reasons. Uh, firstly, to sit down at the right hand of the throne is a sign of authority. Uh, so as we saw last week, Jesus is both priest and king. Jesus has both the will, the mercy to want to help us but as, as priest, but as king, he also has the power to do so. Uh, the second reason Jesus is seated is because his priestly work is finished. Now, this cannot be overstated. Right? The Levitical priests would stand in the temple offering sacrifices day after day, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. We saw that in Hebrews uh, 7.27. But in that very same verse, now it's only a few verses back from our passage today, uh, he says this about Jesus. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. All right? There is no need for Jesus to offer sacrifices anymore. For his death on the cross is all we need. Okay? Sitting down means that Jesus' work of sacrificing is done. It's finished. However, that doesn't mean that Jesus has nothing to do anymore. As Hebrews has already told us, Jesus is still interceding for us with the Father. What's he doing? He's, he's praying for us and he's listening to our prayers. And the second thing we note here is where Jesus is doing this. And he's doing it in the true tabernacle, verse 2. 
Now, what's that talking about? What's the tabernacle about? Well, the tabernacle was a special tent that God told Moses to build, to make, uh, for where the priests would do their work under the old covenant. So, so when God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, he knew they couldn't follow them perfectly. And so what he did was he set up a system by which the people could atone for their sins by offering sacrifices for their sins at the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this special tent and it would travel around with the Israelites during their 40 years of wandering in the desert. And but then when they got settled in the promised land, what King David did was he, was he asked if he could replace the temporary tent with a more permanent structure, a temple in Jerusalem. And the temple uh, followed the basic uh, architecture, the basic pattern of the tabernacle. Now the question is, where did Moses get the pattern for the tabernacle? Well, we get this incredible story in Exodus 24, you should go and read it yourself, where Moses takes 70 elders up on Mount Sinai, where all of them see God himself and they have a meal with God. It is, it is this incredible table fellowship that these 70 elders get to have. Then Moses goes further up the mountain where he spends 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord uh, and where we're told he was shown the layout of the heavenly tabernacle, uh, the true sanctuary that is in heaven now the author the author reminds us of this in uh, in verse 5 have a look uh, this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain and so the earthly tabernacle and the temple along with it was a replica of the real sanctuary in heaven now why is this important it's because the original readers were in danger of leaving behind the real high priest who works in the real sanctuary in heaven to go back to what the author calls in verse 5 a copy and a shadow, a replica. And that is a tragedy. Right, friends, anyone who looks to religious institutions or good works or a priest to intercede for them, they are looking to a cheap knockoff, a replica. Now, even we Anglicans, we need to be careful about this. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but our church building here is actually built on the... Uh, all, church, all Anglican churches built before the 1980s are built on the pattern of the tabernacle. So let me explain. Uh, where the pews are sitting, this area is called the nave. And that's basically representing the, the temple court where the people were allowed. But then uh, you've got what's called the chancel, the stage area. And what happens on the chancel? Well, that's where the, the priests, the ministers, either lead the service or, or preach, right? Only the priests are allowed there. And then right up the back, you've got the sanctuary. And that's representing the Holy of Holies. And what happens there? Well, that's where the priest presides over the Lord's Supper on the altar. Now, I pray that you and I know that's not an altar. It's just a table. All right? But we need to be careful because if anyone comes to, to this church building thinking they're going to perform some sort of you know, tabernacle-like religious uh, uh, ceremony, they have actually left Jesus. They've left the destination. 
Right? Simon Manchester says, to go back to the road sign is a tragedy because you've left Jesus. But to give your hearts and minds to Jesus is a triumph because you get Jesus and everything he came to give. Only Jesus serves in the real sanctuary. Well, the rest of the chapter talks about another important pillar of Judaism, and that is the covenant. We see this in verse 6. Read it with me. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, what is a covenant? Well, look, a simple definition is that a covenant is a legally binding relationship. Uh, we, we, we might use the term contract today. So marriage, for example, is a covenant. Okay, Marriage is a legally binding relationship. Uh, you are tied together in a way that it is very difficult to break up. Just ask anyone who's ever been divorced. But the big question is, why would you want such a thing? Why would you want to tie yourself down to such a relationship? And the answer is, the more binding a relationship is, the more intimate it is, and therefore the more delightful it is. Let me explain. Uh, the alternative to a covenant relationship is a consumer relationship. Right, so this is the kind of relationship you might have with your barista. Okay, So if my barista continues to make me good coffee or hot chocolate, in my case, uh, for a reasonable price, then I will continue to give him or her my business. But if their standards start to drop or they raise their prices too much, I'm going to the cafe down the road. Now, there's nothing wrong with a consumer relationship. Both parties benefit from such a uh, an arrangement, don't they? But such an arrangement is not a place where real intimacy can grow. All right, so imagine a marriage in which the wedding, the wedding vows were not, uh, I will love you till death do us part. They were, I'll love you until you stop giving me what I want. Until you stop making me feel good. Right, do you know what's wrong with such a marriage? You're not safe. You're not able to be vulnerable. You're not able to open up. You're not able to be weak. You're not able to talk about uh, your needs and wants. Why? Because you're too busy stepping on eggshells, trying to be the best barista in the neighbourhood so that your spouse doesn't leave you for the barista down the road. Right? A covenant relationship is the most intimate and therefore the most delightful relationship there is. And the thing, the, abs the absolute wonder and marvel and beauty of the God of the Bible is that he has offered such a relationship to his people. Now, we don't have time to go into all the ins and outs of covenant theology today, uh, but just quickly, God makes five covenants with humans in the Old Testament. So he makes a covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel at Sinai, and with King David. However, all five covenants are really different iterations, successive stages in what is known as the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, 
as you might want to call it. Testament and covenant, same word. And so at every stage of the old covenant, uh, God came along and said to these particular people here, have a big bucket load of blessing. Right? That's, that's actually what a divine human covenant is. It's God pouring out his blessing. It's kind of like uh, there's, this, there's this small water park we, uh, the, the, at the caravan park we holiday at each year. And one of the features there is this, this bucket uh, that fills up with water. And when it gets filled, it tips out. And, and our kids love it. They, they stand there waiting for the bucket to fill up because when it, when it tips out, they get covered in water, all right? Uh, that's what God is doing when he makes a covenant with his people. He's saying, here, have an enormous bucket load full of blessing. But that blessing, that grace, requires a response from humans. So every single divine human covenant is grace and response. Grace and and response okay so for example god's grace to adam and eve is here have a paradise the response donate from that tree over there god's grace to noah i'm going to save you and your family from the enormous flood that's coming noah's response build an ark god's grace to the people of israel here have the promised land and all the blessings that go along with that Israel's response, follow the Old Testament law. Now, the Old Testament law was good. It was designed to produce uh, the absolute best social capital available. You see, if everyone in the Old Testament actually followed the Old Testament law, it would have been like heaven on earth. All right? But the problem with the Old Covenant was it was designed to remind the people that they were sinful. Uh, this is what we modern Christians fail to grasp about the Old Covenant, is that everything in the Old Covenant, all right, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the high priests, the law, they were all designed to remind the people each and every day that sinners are going to sin. Right? So as much grace as was poured out by God on the people, their response was designed to remind them each and every day that they were sinful. Now, why would God set it up this way? Well, it's to show them they need a saviour. To point them to Jesus. And that's the whole point of the old covenant. Yeah, it was good. It was very good. But its purpose was to point to something better. And we see this in verse 7. Read it with me. For if there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. All right, so last week we saw that the Levitical priesthood was imperfect. Uh, how did we know this? Because the Old Testament itself told us it needed to be replaced, Psalm 110. And the same with this. The Old Covenant was imperfect. How do we know this? Because the Old Testament itself tells us it needed replacing, Jeremiah 31. So that's that, see that big quote there from verses 8 uh, to 12? That's the, the, the passage that he's quoting from Jeremiah 31. Just read verse 8 with me. Uh, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And that's what Jesus came to do, to bring the new covenant. All right? Luke 22, verse 20. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
which is poured out for you. So that's the new covenant. The rest of this Jeremiah 31 quote goes on to tell us why a new covenant needed to be sought. And uh, it outlines three promises, all right? And they're very intimately related, very closely related. So the first promise, remember this is one of the better promises, is in verse 10. Uh, I will pour, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Now what does that mean for, for God to, to write his laws in our hearts? Well, it means that we love God's laws, right? So those under the old covenant, uh, under the new covenant, will want to follow God's laws because we love them. They won't be a burden to us like the Israelites saw the Old Testament laws, right? The Israelites didn't love the law because it reminded them day after day that they couldn't fulfill it. Christians, on the other hand, love God's laws. And this is how you tell the real Christians from the fake Christians, right? Anyone who ignores God's laws, who rejects God's laws, who sees any of God's laws as a burden because, oh, look, God is just taking my fun away, they're not really a follower of Jesus. Now, that's not to say that Christians don't break God's laws. We sin every day. We break God's laws every day. But when a real Christian sins, they repent and they try and do better. Right? Real Christians don't ignore or reject or, 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 or badmouth God's laws. They're written on our hearts. The reason they're written on our hearts is because we're in a relationship with the lawgiver. And this is the second of these better promises of the new covenant. Have a look at verse 11. Uh, no longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them, uh, or the least of them to the greatest. So to be a Christian means to be in a covenant relationship, a, a, a binding and therefore delightful relationship with the creator of the universe. I kind of I liken it to uh, to that show The Voice, which is on at the moment. So on The Voice, the contestants come in and they sing a song to uh, the judges who are facing away from them. All right, but if the judge is impressed by them, they turn their chair around, and and you see the contestants' eyes just light up. You know this this judge likes me. To be a Christian means God turned His chair around for you. And he's not just offering us a few singing lessons. He's offering us this huge bucket load of blessing, starting with himself. And this is why we love to obey his laws. Like, put it this way. Imagine I uh, reconcrete my driveway, right? And while the driveway is still drying, I put a big rope around it with a big sign that says wet concrete. Now, if I go inside and some of the local kids come by, what do you think they're going to do? They'll probably scratch their name into it, won't they? But if my wife comes along, she's not going to do that. Why? Because she has a relationship with the person who put that law there, that sign there. Right? Christians love God's laws because we know God relationally. The third promise is how God's laws are written on our hearts. 
How does he do that? Well, some people think it's because uh, Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. Now, the problem with this theory is Old Testament believers had the Holy Spirit as well. Now, this wasn't revealed to us in the Old Testament. We had to wait for the New Testament to do that, but it's, because, it's called uh, progressive revelation. Okay, But the New Testament makes it clear that no one turns to God without the Holy Spirit's help. Jesus himself said it. This is John 3, 5. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now remember, Jesus said that before Pentecost. And, and he rebukes Nicodemus for not knowing that. All right? Something different did have at Pentecost, but to say that someone can turn to God without the Spirit, it's actually a heresy called Pelagianism. Right? So it's not the Spirit that makes the difference uh, because Old Testament saints could only turn to God if they had the Spirit. The difference is the sacrifice. Like as we've said, the Old Covenant was designed for the people to offer sacrifices day after day. So when you went to the temple, do you know what you, you, know what you could smell? Right? So if you come into church today, uh, you'll probably smell disinfectant, all right? because COVID, we're wiping everything down. Uh, but under the Old Covenant, when you went to the temple, your nostrils were filled with the stench of blood and dead animals. Right? And herein lies the ultimate promise, the ultimate promise of the new covenant. Read verse 12 with me. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You see, the reason it is such a joy to follow God's commands, the reason it is such a delight to be in a covenant relationship with God is because he's taken care of the sacrifice for sin forever on the cross. You see, where the old covenant says, look, you are sinful and you need a saviour, the new covenant says, Jesus is that saviour, and if you turn to him, you're forgiven forever. Whereas the old covenant said, do, 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 the new covenant says, done, done, done. So let me close with the implications of all this. Okay, The implications are pretty simple. If we look to anything other than Jesus' death for our salvation, we're returning to the road sign. We're, we're living in a Hollywood movie. We're sitting in a shadow. And so while it is imperative that Christians read the Old Testament, uh, we don't read it as the way of salvation. We read the Old Testament as a signpost to salvation. All right, we see this in verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. See, we can no longer be saved by the old covenant. In fact, less than 10 years after this letter was originally written, the Jewish temple and the Jewish priesthood were destroyed forever. The temple has never been rebuilt in over 2,000 years. There's actually a big mosque sitting on the temple mound right now. And the Jewish priesthood is never coming back. Because the uh, Levitical genealogies, the Aaronic genealogies, were burnt by the Romans. Right? The Old Covenant is now obsolete. But so too is any religion that looks 
to our actions or our behaviour. You see, any religion that claims things like going to church or taking the Lord's Supper or being a moral person or giving to charity somehow contributes to our salvation is obsolete. Why? Because it's based on a consumer relationship with God. Right? It's claiming God is up in heaven saying, Oh, look, I will love and cherish you so long as you're good to me. Now, friends, why would you look to a shadow when a deep, intimate, and therefore delightful relationship with God is on offer? Right? Now, if you're happy to settle for a cheap Hollywood knockoff version of salvation, then there are plenty of religions out there. But if you want a God who is a delight to obey, promise number one, because we're in a covenant relationship with him, promise number two, and which he remembers our sins no more, promise number three, then look to Jesus, who serves in the real sanctuary, is mediator of a new covenant that is based on those new promises.